Tuesday morning to you, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon Podcast. Since it is Tuesday, this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode several years ago. Thanks for downloading, and I sure hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on November 27th of 2011, under the headline, Portland was the scene of Sammy Davis Jr.'s Big Break. If you hang around the right entertainment venues in Portland, sooner or later someone will tell you that Sammy Davis Jr. got his start here. Well, that's not exactly right. But the City of Roses definitely had a special place in Davis's heart. You could say he caught his big break here, but it would be more accurate to say his big break caught him rather than the other way around. Portland just happened to be where he was when that finally happened. Here's the story. Sammy Davis Jr. was a showman born and bred. His parents were both respected vaudevillians. His mother was a chorus singer and his father already a storied song and dance man, both of them living in New York when he was born. The gregarious young lad didn't have a chance. He was sucked into show business at the age of two when his dad took him on stage and sang with the lad in his lap. They became a trio then, Sammy and his dad and his dad's best friend, Will Maston. They called themselves the Will Maston Trio. Later, when little Sammy got bigger, they started calling themselves the Will Maston Trio featuring Sammy Davis Jr. The kid was that good. But of course, you knew that. When World War II came along, young Sammy was called up soon as he turned 18. The Army quickly figured out he was more useful on stage than he was in a trench, and he spent much of his time in the Army performing. The Army was a horrible shock to young Sammy, who for the first 18 years of his life had never really left the world of vaudeville performers. Like a lot of high-performance professions, vaudeville was a world in which ability was king. A young black fellow on the vaudeville circuit would certainly see some racism, segregated facilities, rude hotel clerks, that sort of thing, but it was nothing like the outside world, and it was nothing like the vitriol and outright hatred that young Sammy found in the Army. This was somewhat ironic. It was the army that taught a whole generation of white Americans to drop their racist views. Well, many of them anyway. Because they found it hard to square what they learned of the quality and character of black soldiers who fought alongside them and occasionally saved their lives with the discrimination that was widespread in society at the time. For young Sammy, perhaps because the people he encountered weren't in combat, the experience was much different. It was particularly shocking for Sammy because from infancy, Sammy Sr. and Uncle Will Maston had shielded him from even what relatively little racism there was in vaudeville. Quote, that man was just jealous because we're in show business and he's going to be pushing beans all his damn life, Sammy Sr. told his young son on one occasion, after a drugstore lunch counter clerk dropped an N-bomb on the three entertainers and ordered them to sit at the colored end of the counter. But the army was different. There was no mistake in getting one's face spat on, wristwatch smashed, nose broken, having racial slurs applied to one's forehead in oil-based paint. That wasn't just jealousy. It was a harsh way to lose one's innocence, and it left an unmistakable bitterness that took a long time to fade. Sammy left the army more determined than ever to use his talents to change the world in whatever way he could. 
but he was profoundly demoralized. You can't mistake the bleakness in his prose when he writes in his memoirs about that time in his life. Where once he'd been a proud showbiz man, feeling like his life was glamorous and going places, now he felt the rut he was in. And by now, it was definitely a rut. The fortunes of the Wilmaston trio were fading like the vaudeville era they were part of. Fading to a starvation diet of shows in different towns, to occasional grueling strings of one-night stands, to the dreaded day when they'd have to give it up and start pushing beans themselves. But some of Sammy's old friends had made it big. Really big. One of these people was Frank Sinatra. The Will Maston trio had performed with him in 1941. Now, in the post-war years, Sammy managed to reconnect with the chairman of the board whose star was rising like a rocket. It was good to have successful friends, but that didn't pay the bills. Sammy's group played on. Los Angeles, Chicago, Boston, Portland. The Will Maston Trio was in Portland for two years, playing regularly in the Clover Room nightclub, among other local hot spots. Sammy and his team were one of Stumptown's hottest draws, but still it wasn't exactly a prestige gig. Although it had a sizzling jazz scene at the time, Portland was not an A-list town, and it was on the way to almost nowhere. Portland has to have been one of the lowest points for the trio. It's certainly among the least important cities they performed in. But Sammy was a showman. He loved to be loved, and there is no question but that Portland loved him. Plus, there may have been racism in Portland, but at least it wasn't the the back-of-the-bus-boy kind of town. He doesn't talk about this in his memoirs, but it's at least possible that Sammy was planning on sticking around a while, settling for being a big fish in a small pond. But then, in 1947, a telegram arrived from Frank Sinatra's agent, Harry Rogers. Quote, Open Capitol Theater, New York, next month, it read. Frank Sinatra show, three weeks, $1,250 per. Details follow. We passed that telegram back and forth like three drunks working out of the same bottle, Sammy wrote in his memoirs. Significantly, Sammy stuck around Portland for several years after his big break, basking in the glow of its audiences and hanging out with its showbiz people as his career started lifting off. Stuck around well after his roster of options had expanded to include much more prestigious cities. After 1947, the Will Maston Trio was on its way, with a little help from an old friend. Life for the three of them would never be the same, and for fans of Frank Sinatra's Rat Pack, it would be remembered as the dawn of a golden age. That's the end of today's story, key sources of which included works by Sammy Davis Jr., Phil Stanford, and Robert Dietje. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. More info is at our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulp Lit Productions, a boutique publishing house about which more can be learned at pulp-lit.com. Speaking of which, if you enjoy listening to me, you might check out some of my audiobooks. You can find them most easily with a search for my name on audible.com. Most of them are old pulp stuff, H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Rice Burroughs, etc., but at least two of them are offbeat Oregon history type stuff. Check them out if you're so inclined. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. 
episodes of Offbeat Organ History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.